Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, the podcast where we learn from cybersecurity experts how to stay safe, private, and secure on the cloud and in code. CSCP is hosted by Francesco Cipollone, your cybersecurity friend with a passion for all things cyber and sharing stories of other professionals with you. This episode is brought to you by the generosity of Phoenix Security Limited. Phoenix helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security supply chain visibility by leveraging the power of correlation and contextualization. Discover how Phoenix Security helps CISO and security engineers act fast, prevent burnout, and implement DevSecOps at the speed of cloud. Phoenix Security. Correlate, contextualize, and act on risk with one click. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. Today, we are closing the season three, and we are just about to start the recording of the new season. And we have a friend of a common group that came and joined us on the on the closing season, and we're going to talk about one topic that we, guess what, never talk about, that is application security. So... Let me warmly welcome Nathan that has been chatting with us on a couple of meetups that we've been. And in this conversation, we actually picked up, you know what, we should talk about application security. Before we dive deeper, let me introduce Nathan. Or actually, Nathan, tell us more about you. Where are you coming from? How did you stumble across security? And tell us a little bit more about you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. My name is Nathan. My pronouns are he, him. And uh, yeah, I've been in the game a little over five years, seven years. I don't know. What did I tell you before? Seven. And, um, <clears throat> you know, when I started started my adulthood, uh, it, was not in, it was not in cybersecurity. It was not in application security at all. Uh, I wasn't even in, in technology. It was in music composition. That was my bachelor's. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's not IT at all, is it? Um, <laughs> but... That's an interesting start. <laughs> it is Tell an me more. Start. You get me intrigued. Yeah. So, um, as you know, being a, a musician, uh, you need you need a secondary job. So I started as a math tutor as well. So I was doing, I was doing music and I was doing math. And all the parents in, in the math students that I was teaching, they're like, oh, well, music and math are so, they're so related. It makes a lot of sense. I was like, oh, I don't know. But okay, <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. I mean, I got the job. I'm doing it. But um, uh, I started thinking about my career. I started thinking about what I wanted out of life. Mm-hmm. And I, um, something happened. I listened to some podcast and I heard some analogy about a gravity problem. And uh, I guess to sum it up is to say, if you want to lose weight, you don't try to change gravity. Uh, right. Like I could, I could, I could drop, gosh, a hundred pounds by moving to the moon. Uh, but I don't think that really meets the intention of losing weight. And it's certainly not very feasible. Um so when I, you know, thinking about my own life, what do I want out of life? How do I support that life? How mm-hmm. do I support 
a family and kids and all that stuff. Um, I could do it on a musician's salary, but it means making certain compromises on what that lifestyle would be. So I was looking around for what do I like to do? What are my strengths? What am I interested in? And how can I leverage that into uh, the kind of career that would support the lifestyle that I want for me and my family that I did not have, but I knew I wanted to have. And that's when I started thinking about cybersecurity, actually. Uh, it's a growing field. It has been and will pretty much always be a growing field, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, which is really nice. A lot of career opportunities there. And I realized some things about music and about math tutoring that played really well into cybersecurity. So with music composition, you are playing with the expectations of the listener. You're setting up a pattern and you're setting up variations of that pattern. If it's too chaotic, wow. it's noise. If it's too uh, accommodating to your expectations, it's boring. And I'm not sure which is worse to be boring or to be noise, but if you get that sweet spot, that's really interesting music. And interesting. Uh, with that expectations translated fairly well, when we started picking up programming languages and working with developers, um, developers make a lot of assumptions, a lot of assumptions when they're developing, yeah. they kind of have to. And security is about understanding what those assumptions are and what those expectations are and playing with it. You asked me for a username and a password. Huh. What if I put in some SQL code? That is uh, variations on a theme, so to speak. And um, so that, and then the math tutoring I was doing, look, if I can teach uh, a crying 14-year-old how to multiply fractions, <laughs> uh, I think I can teach cross-site scripting to a junior developer. And have an he's crying. Uh, usually <laughs> the junior developers aren't crying, but they might be. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so like I had a passion for playing with expectations and kind of like tinkering around and like getting to the root of what those assumptions were. I had a, a strength or a skill in explaining things, in teaching things. And I Personally, like I never learned something so well as when I was teaching it. And so uh, I've naturally been seeking out mentorship opportunities, ways to teach, whether those teaching other developers uh, how to remediate vulnerabilities, how to uh, work with the security engineers on my team, help make them better security engineers. Mm -hmm. uh, I really appreciated all the opportunities that I received when I was coming up. And I actively work to give those opportunities to the next generation. I speak like I'm so old. I'm not. But uh, I've been around a little <laughs> bit. I'm able to, I'm no, I able think that's to important. provide some opportunities. Yes. No, I think absolutely. that's important. I think. Um, yeah. And that's why that's why I wanted to, to dive deeper on your history and background, because other people yeah. can take inspiration on there is a part in cybersecurity. And I think... It's seen as a very yeah. technical field, and it is a very technical field, but also there is a way to bridge. What I always say and what I see the best people that get opportunity to people in cyber say, I can teach skill, I can't teach attitude. And I think if you really yeah. want a field or a career in cybersecurity, 
that's going to get you through the door because that shows attitude and passion that maybe somebody with technical skill don't have. So just to wrap up this, 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 what would be the advice that you will give to somebody that want to pivot inside cybersecurity as you've done? Um, Okay. So we're not going to bring up the debate. We're not going to bring up the debate of uh, certifications versus uh, education, like uh, undergrad or master's degree. I went the route of master's degree and then I got an internship. And I think that internship was the most impactful thing in my career. It's where Mm -hmm. I learned the practical application of it. And um, seeking out those mentorship opportunities, that's what was the most beneficial for me. And and that's part of why I'm here and part of why uh, at my current position now, we, we have an intern. We're going to have her starting over the summer. Fantastic. And uh, I'm so excited. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> and it's, it's because it's because I'm helping... Uh, I am helping the next generation. I'm helping somebody break into the field. And, you know, when we were inter- interviewing internship candidates, um, some of the interviewers, they were they were focusing more on skill set and technical knowledge that they were coming in with. And I was actively going against that. I don't need someone who knows everything. I need someone who wants to know everything. And uh, we went went with the passion. Yes, exactly. That attitude. We went with a candidate that I felt had a lot of passion, had a fantastic attitude, was hungry to learn. Uh, There's there's nothing better for a teacher than a willing student. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted that for, well, for myself selfishly, but I also wanted that for my team. I want everybody on my team to be given that mentorship opportunity to teach someone else. Uh, because I believe that they will learn application security much better because of it. And that's, I think that's contagious because uh, what I really love and I, and I yeah. really connect you, with you on this because when I, when I see somebody that is hungry to know, I, I, I so much, and, and I run a mentorship program, I see that passion seeping in and I'm pulled to give information and to share that knowledge. And yeah, I, I to, I'm totally with you. And and thank you for taking an apprenticeship and and helping the next generation and, and maybe chiseling yeah. away that skill gap that we have and that we all complain and <laughs> we have a way to chisel it up and yeah. I don't know why more people don't take it on, but maybe on that subject, what do you see right now? Uh, you know, old generation, new generation. What do you see us? our field and specific on application security and how has it changed in the past years? What do you think the state of the industry is right now? It's a very interesting question that I've been pondering for a while. And uh, the, the only answer I can come up with is that the, the state of application security is as varied and diverse as the definition of application security. Uh, okay, let's stop it, there. It's really, yeah. Um, uh, you know, in in addition to looking for interns, I am actually currently hiring for senior level security engineer on my team, and the the candidates that we have coming in have such a wide breadth of mm-hmm. experience and different skill sets because they've had such a wide breadth of definitions for what application security even is. Right. Some companies bring vulnerability management as a part of AppSec. 
And some people say that's security operations. Some people have um, architecture reviews as part of application security. Some people might say that's product security. Uh, and then there's the whole application what security is product, product? debate. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I'm seeing such a wide variation on what application really means across mm -hmm. different industries, different companies. So uh, it's, it's really hard to answer that question. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's a whole, it's a whole, it's, it's the wild west. I mean, we're forging ahead and maybe this I is think a what is software. What is software is, is what these strike me as yeah. really what is software nowadays, because we had the old definition of, I guess, software and pen testing was what application was so many years ago. And when we ask people, yeah. do you have an application security program? Yes, I do bug bounty or I do, well, in, in the old days, I do pen yeah. testing every now and then, yeah. and then checking the box, done, right? We, we fuzz it, we fuzz it, and we're good. Um, well, fuzzing was yeah, already yeah. advanced. <laughs> uh, yeah, I that was it? a really mature, really mature you got fuzzing. Um, yeah, no, I actually... Uh, the history of the application security team at Mailchimp was primarily a, a group of pen testers who were pen testing. Mm -hmm. And I think they, they did a fantastic job securing the application. However, um, pen testing is expensive. It's really expensive. And it's non-sustainable. Uh, correct. Yeah, that too. Yeah. As the, the acceleration of the business producing features and products increases, um, you just end up having to hire more and more people to do pen testing. And that is the most expensive time to remediate anything. And yeah. it's also the riskiest time. The stuff is almost out the door, already out the door. You're, you're already getting exposed to that risk. Uh, I mean, maybe this is a bit of a hot take, but if it's not in production, I don't think it's a vulnerability. And uh, It's an incident. Well, what I mean by that is like, if you have a dependency scanner in your CICD, they're scanning CVEs in, in your third-party apps and whatever, like open libraries. Uh, I wouldn't call that a vulnerability. I think it, it's a risk, but it's not a vulnerability until you actually deploy it into production that can be impactful to your business, right? We call it vulnerabilities for the sake of not having a long conversation with developers, but... Um, <laughs> But I don't well, think there's a vulnerability nowadays. <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, so when the vulnerability is in production, like that's the riskiest time. If we can get it in the CICD, if we can get it in the uh, development, like the implementation or even the architecture or the ideation phase of the feature, we are reducing the time spent on bad code or I'll say insecure code, Reduce, reducing the amount of hours spent fixing that, and we're reducing the amount of uh, headaches and security incidents, and right. everyone's just working a lot more efficiently. And so as I'm uh, building out the application security team and the application security program at MailChimp, uh, I'm, I'm focusing on that. How do we push left and we... That's a, this is the mantra of application security uh, is push left, push left, push left. Uh, I think there, there's been, 
There's been a blockage with that though. Uh, mm -hmm. Pushing left has been from the perspective of software engineering. And that makes sense. A lot of application security engineers start off as software engineers, and then they pick up security as an extra skill set and like unlock a better career path for them. It's wonderful for them. That's their perspective, and that's what they know. And so they focus on that. There are not many security engineers that I've met, at least, that have come from more of a project management uh, product side of things, where right. they're thinking about what are the feature gaps of what we're doing? What are customers, what are they going to want next? What do they need now? And uh, looking at that design phase, that that even earlier than you write code. So pushing left doesn't just mean like get a rule in your SAS. I mean, it does, but we can go further left than that. We can uh, go further back than dependency scanning. We can go all the way back to requirements. Uh, the architecture. Deployment. Or requirements, secure requirements. Oh, 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 sorry. Yeah, requirements. Yes, we can go back to the product requirements and try to inject security requirements alongside that. Uh, at a point where they don't know the architecture, they don't know how they're going to build it, they don't know the language that they're going to use to build it with, they know what they want it to do. And they have an idea of the data they're going to be uh, processing, whether mm -hmm. that's PII or sensitive or public. Uh, they have an idea of the kind of authorization controls that they're going to need on this, who is going to be using it. They have an idea of a business criticality. Like, how important is this to the business? If we're going to justify right. engineering hours and that budget to build it, it should be important, but how important? If it goes down, is it a SEV1, SEV2, SEV0? Uh, and, you know, do we need to have an all hands to get this up and running in five hours? This episode is brought to you by the generosity of Phoenix Security Limited. Phoenix helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security supply chain visibility by leveraging the power of correlation and contextualization. Phoenix Platform connects to your repositories, scanners, and cloud, correlates all the information, and provides you with a prioritized list of vulnerabilities that need to be addressed first. Discover how Phoenix Security helps CISOs and developers remove friction and maximize the use of DevSecOps professionals at phoenix.security. Phoenix Security. Correlate, contextualize, and act on risk with one click. I think that's super, that's super underrated. How do you yes. bring, I think, I love the fact that you brought in the product security perspective and the project management perspective because it's a way to connect to the business. And what you just described is business justification of security man hour that you spend on a project and security engineering. So yeah. building versus fixing or preventing fixing this particular case, that is so exactly. super important. And in the shift left, as you rightfully said, you want to bring this early as possible, but then if yeah. you don't have the business buy-in and support across the board, across every product, that initiative fails very, very quickly. Oh, I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, security needs to be a strong partner. I mean, our, I strongly believe this, that our mission is to enable the business. Right. That's the whole point. If we are not enabling the business, we are 
putting ourselves out of a job because the business is not going to do very well, is it? <laughs> uh, you know, I've got I've got stock in this company. I want the company to do well. I'd like it to operate with a minimal acceptable amount of risk, but I also want it to make money. And I need to help it make money. I need to help it accelerate its growth and its customer adoption and retention. And if it's a good feature, I want it out the door, but I just want it out the door in a way that protects the user data. Yeah, and, and is is according to the risk tolerance of the organization. If not going to production is even with a riskier feature, but knowing that risk and going to production anyway, because you're not gonna you're gonna lose market share, you're gonna lose trust from investors. Like those are all business justification. But if you compare risk against risk, and that's why I love the fact that you mentioned risk, business impact assessments, the impact that's a specific embryonic problem might have when it gets deployed those are actually real risk and you can have a conversation with a product owner and no person saying of mine will just go completely full-on risk unless he's <laughs> unaware of it right <laughs> if your uh, neck is on the block no. and you know you can have a massive gain with a massive risk maybe you do it um but i've seen that there are people that are less likely to accept or tolerate a risk when there is their head on the block and they are aware of it in ways that they can understand and relate to. If you just talk sure. vulnerabilities or requirements, it's difficult to, to relate to that. Yeah, I think you need to help them understand the, the level of risk, but then also help them break it down into certain categories that make sense to them. Whether mm -hmm. this is about uh, compliance and legal involvement, whether this is about business criticality or uh, the data classification, it makes sense to them. Oh yeah, I'm touching PII. I'm handling credit card data. This is pretty risky. I, I get that. Makes sense. And I understand why we have the controls here and why we need this level of engagement with the application security team. Um, I think very often uh, I find myself in a situation where we, we find out something's going out or has just launched. And I've like, what's a Google alerts for like certain keywords, right? And it's like, oh, a new product just launched. Okay, well, I haven't seen this before. Um, has not happened to MailChimp. I'll put that disclaimer out. This is a totally different company I used to work for and not, not here. Um, but yeah, like, so, so there is threat the intelligence and business intelligence used for threat intelligence. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's a bad state to be in where you're like, I never saw this. Did anybody look at this? And we have to scramble. Uh, it's the planned work becomes an injection because we we didn't really plan it that well, did we? Um, so part of partnering with product is to help help actually plan out that work. If we can set the expectation with our customer, product and engineering are the customers of our team. Uh, look, we 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 understand what you're trying to do. We've helped you understand the risk involved in what you're trying to do. A high-risk product is not a bad product, by the way. High-risk product just happens to have a high tolerance of risk. Like, mm -hmm. we're going to put some mitigating controls on this. We have to protect it a little bit more. We have to be a little more careful with this. Um, but still a good product. Um, 
But once we help them explain that, we can set an expectation that, oh, we should be involved earlier. We should be involved more often. And right. conversely, if something is a lower risk, again, doesn't mean it's good or bad as a product. It just means we don't need to worry about it quite so much. Mm-hmm. If this is using public data, well-worn, like golden path or paved road kind of deployment. All right. You know, we'll look at the architecture. We'll give it a once over. I think we're good. We'll but verify that. Ends, we have good. an API that is burning red. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, we have an open elk stack or whatever like that. You know, like there are things that we know are risky and we know we need to be involved in, uh, exceedingly involved partners. And there's mm-hmm. other times where we can say, no, you got this. We're good. It's cool. We can reserve our capacity for the things that really are going to be the most impactful. And uh, we can plan out our work a lot easier. Uh, it re- there are times where you get competing requests. So both people want you to do the same work, but you've only got so mm-hmm. many hours in a day. How do you decide who's going to get that hour and who's not. This is the opportunity cost that we have to deal with every day of our lives. The more data we can get in making that decision, the more likely we can make the right decision or the most impactful decision. It helps with priorities. And uh, by understanding the risk of the product or risk of the feature, we can use that to help us prioritize which one we're going to look at first. Highs and criticals, yeah, we're going to look at that right away. Lows, you know what, if that waits a week, that's okay. If that if that goes out to production and then we take a look at it, it was a low risk and we knew we were spending our time on the high risk stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Again, risk tolerance, but let's understand our risk so we know what we're tolerating. I really like that approach because enable you to convey a risk-based decision and discussion and also to prioritize yeah your team and in general the application security team that is so rare and 90% of the time it burns out because everything is screaming everything is on fire there is alarms everywhere and that no. is not a very healthy environment to actually first of all make good decisions yep i suppose so even if you're the best and everything is screaming at you you're probably going to make some mistakes and the likelihood and the probability and the impact of those mistakes yeah. are very high. So you're operating in a very high risk environment generated by noise. Um, so I totally yeah. agree with you. Focus, laser focus on the things that is more important. Also create a more joyful way. So we can probably retain oh, yeah. those talents a little bit better and not spend a lot of money and effort and time to actually recruit the next generation <laughs> that will question why are all these people quitting? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, burnout is real and we do need to protect the work-life balance of everybody on the team mm-hmm. and ensure that they are, they're bringing them best selves to work because they feel the best uh, mm-hmm. while they're at work and not getting inundated with fire after fire. Um, you know, just the, the ability to plan work is such a important thing that application security doesn't always get to do. Right. Uh, it's one incident to the next. We need to get out of that. It's hard. To, it's hard to break out of that cycle, though. It really is hard to break out of that cycle. So we were discussing about avoiding burnouts and preventing. So and and we touch point on uh, Nathan, what you are doing in Mailchimp and how you're evolving. Mm-hmm. 
this program of work. And I know no. that I used to have pet peeves and pet project names. So does does this project has a name? <laughs> uh, yes, we do have a little pro uh, project name for this. We're calling this the Secure Product Development Rhythm, SPDR, or SPIDER for short. And it is intended to, I do love the name. Yeah, uh, a good name really, really sells the idea. Um, but mm -hmm. here's the idea. Embedding security engineers in development teams, highly effective, but also very expensive and not really a scalable approach. As the company grows, it would be very, very difficult to continue that hiring to maintain mm -hmm. that ratio of security engineers to engineers, software engineers. So Spider is a way to... Uh, intentionally grow and weave together our services that we're providing to the product and engineering teams to maintain that context so that if somebody does a threat model, mm -hmm. the information from that threat model, the security guidance stays with the product and the feature so that when it comes time to do the code review, uh, we understand what we've asked them to do. We can just check did they do this? Like we can spin up the context really, really quickly, as opposed to going to their stand up every day and doing their sprint <laughs> planning with them, their roadmap. Uh, uh, I don't want that. I don't want that to happen. Like I have four people. I can't be in every team. We would spend all of our time in stand ups and not actually doing any work, uh, not producing anything of value or reducing any risk anywhere. Right. Instead, instead, we're trying to, again, work with the product teams, help them understand the level of risk of what they're developing, and then give them uh, a list of engagements that we want to have based on the level of risk or certain answers to questions saying, we need to do a threat model here, we need to do an architecture here, we need to do a code mm -hmm. review here, we need to do a pen test here. Pen tests do have their place. It just can't be the only thing we do. And um, once we know the engagements they're going to have, we can plan out that work. And we are building out those services intentionally to feed into each other, to create a flywheel sort of approach right. where the things we identify in a threat model help us do better code reviews. And the things we find in code reviews can, again, help us in the penetration testing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the penetration testing, again, should feed into uh, like our SAST rule engine. We're finding this vulnerability a lot. We should write a rule about it. Right. Um, the, uh, yeah, by feeding into each other, we're each services, I should say, by feeding into each service, we are increasing the efficiency of each service and being able to provide more with less. And that's a very ambitious plan. How do you, yeah. I, I absolutely admire that because it means efficiency, it means focus, it means strong utilization of your team in the best way possible that makes them feeling they add in value. Yeah. How do you sell that to the business? Because a lot of organization actually are, you know, how many things are you fixing? How many vulnerabilities are you fixing? A lot of application security program 
they kind of boil down to numbers that you can crunch. That's, I think there's a problem with KPIs. <laughs> with those metrics. I don't think, I, I seriously, I don't think number of vulnerabilities fixed is a good metric for a team. Um, in the same way, like if you went to a dentist and you started measuring a dentist by those KPIs, like how many cavities did you fill? A good dentist isn't measured by how many cavities they fill. Right? How many they prevent. Ah, but how do you measure how many cavities they prevent? That's really, really difficult. But what can you measure? You can measure dental hygiene. Mm -hmm. Are the dentist customers revisiting the dentist every six months like they're supposed to? Are the dentist customers flossing? Are they brushing their teeth? They may still get cavities. That's going to happen. It's just the nature of the human body decaying over time as we get older. <laughs> but uh, but we can help um, or we can measure the dentist's effectiveness by measuring the dental hygiene of the customers and of the organization. Hmm. And, and I would use that rates. to measure information. Sorry? It would be how many, how many times a single person shows up at the dentist. Uh, a high number is probably not a good sign. Depends why they're showing up. True. For I the mean, same problem. Oh, yeah, sure, for the same problem. But, like, most people go to the dentist twice a year. Just the mm -hmm. average cleaning, that's fine. Some people might go often because they're doing extra services. They're getting teeth whitening. I don't know if that really counts as hygiene, but it means they care about their teeth. Right. They're probably going to be taking care of it. If they're putting money into making it look nicer, right? Uh, they may be going in for orthodontal visits and uh, getting braces or whatever. They may be going in for cavities and root canals and all that other stuff, which is normal to happen. Vulnerabilities mm -hmm. are going to happen. Zero days are going to happen. But how well do we fix them? It's not how many we fix. It's how well we fix them, how fast we're able to adapt to them and address them. So when we look at the efficiency of an application security program or an information security program as a whole, what I want to be measuring is the security culture and the security hygiene of the company, not how many vulnerabilities we fix. That's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But how often are teams engaging with us? Are they repeat customers? How quickly are we able to provide relevant security guidance to those people? Are we meeting SLAs on those services? Uh, when we provide that guidance, are they taking it? Are they listening to us? <laughs> Is anyone listening to us? I don't know. We have to measure it. Um, we asked them to do a thing. Did they do it? Did they regress afterwards? We asked them to fix the vulnerability. How many times have we pushed a fix for something, and then there's an outage, and we revert back, we roll back, and now the vulnerability is back. Right. So, uh, part of the why is it security. Sorry, why is it so complicated to measure proactiveness? Or actually, let me rephrase the question: Is it maybe too hard to measure proactiveness? That's only the few enlightened people do. Sorry, would you say one more time and make sure I understand? Would you say that 
measuring proactiveness is hard or only very enlightened people measure proactiveness versus things that are more immediately measurable that not everybody even does measure like mean time to resolution and vulnerability fixed rate sure. like on a scale of maturity where would you place that i like how the phrasing of the question makes me seem very enlightened and mature uh <laughs> well my that's, my, that's my that's uh, my role of my yeah. host <laughs> no, I, <laughs> uh, no but i i understand the intention of the question though oh yes um there are some things that are like obvious to measure mm-hmm. number of vulnerabilities closed is an obvious thing to measure of course we can measure it it's rather easy to measure but what does it say what does it really tell you? Just how many, how busy we were, I guess, you know, like mm-hmm. I think there are, are other metrics that are more indicative to a security culture, which is really what we want. There are other ways of showing that the company as a whole cares and is doing the right thing, the secure thing, not just the security team is doing its work. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between measuring the number of vulnerabilities closed versus how many times uh, a team has come to us for engagements, for guidance. All right, brilliant. Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the show. One last thing, if people want to know Mm -hmm. more about you, Spider, what's your history, where you write, um, where can they find more about um, you and your knowledge? Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being able to give the plug. Uh, I do have a blog, NathanCook.com. That's my name, N-A-T-H-A-N-C-O-O-K-E.com. And uh, I do that there. I'm also on LinkedIn. You could always hit me up there. That'd be fun. And uh, yeah, I really, I can't speak highly enough of the application security group that you and I met on and yes. the wealth of experience and knowledge shared there. So uh, definitely join that and talk to me there. Brilliant. And uh, let's talk application security and Nathan's blog and all the reference that we made during the podcast is going to be available in the show notes. So hit Nathan, read his blog, share the history and mentor somebody. So take somebody on your wing and follow the example of Nathan and prepare our next generation of fighter and blue team because not everybody (laughs) needs to be in the Panthers team. (laughs) Let's be application security next generation. Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the show, everybody. I hope you enjoy the show. Stay safe out there and prepare the next generation. Goodbye. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and post it on social media tagging Cybersecurity Cloud Podcast for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Discover other episodes at www.cybersecuritypodcast.com.